Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Viarica Marianne, the author of the new book called The Power of Language. Viarica Marianne is a psycholinguist, cognitive scientist, psychologist, and writer known for her research on language, bilingualism, and multilingualism. She is the Ralph and Jean Sundin Endowed Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders and Professor of Psychology at Northwestern University, and is the Principal Investigator of the Northwestern Bilingualism and Psycholinguistics Research Laboratory. She received her PhD in Psychology from Cornell University, Master's degrees from Emory University and from Cornell University, and a Bachelor's degree from the University of Alaska. Her new book, The Power of Language, which was released in April 2023, is a revolutionary book that goes beyond any recent book on language to dissect how language operates in our minds and how to harness its virtually limitless power. In this book, Dr. Marianne reviews research showing that learning a new language enhances executive function, results in higher scores on creative thinking tasks, develops critical reasoning skills, delays Alzheimer's and other types of dementia by four to six years, improves decisions made under emotional duress, and changes what we see, pay attention to, and recall. I read an advanced copy of The Power of Language and found it endlessly fascinating, and I was so happy that Dr. Marianne was able to join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Viorica Marianne. I am a psycholinguist, uh, a professor at Northwestern University, and the author of the new book, The Power of Language. I grew up with uh, Romanian at home as my native language. I also spoke Russian from a very early age. I went to a Russian child care because I was from the eastern part of Romania that was uh, a Soviet territory. Uh, and Russian was the official language on the territory of the former Soviet Union. So I grew up with Romanian and Russian in parallel. I don't have an accent in either language. And then at the age of seven, I started studying English in school. But because I was learning English from other non-native English speakers, I retained the Romanian accent that they were using at the time. And then later on, I uh, studied French. I studied uh, Spanish. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to have a conversation in those languages, a little bit of Dutch, a little bit of other languages as well. But I would say Romanian, Russian, and English are my fluent languages. And uh, what does bilingualism or multilingualism look like in your day-to-day life? Do you use those three languages on a regular basis? I use English as the primary language at work uh, for teaching, for interviews, for research papers, for just about everything at work. I continue to speak Romanian with my parents uh, who live in the United States, but are native uh, Romanian speakers, although they are shifting increasingly to English because their grandchildren, my children, speak pretty much exclusively English. They have been exposed to uh, other languages and speak it a little bit, 
but nowhere near their primary day-to-day use. So um, English is increasingly becoming our go-to language. Russian, I speak very rarely now. Sometimes we may have experiments with Russian speakers in the lab uh, or at conferences or in other social settings. I might might come across it, even maybe news sites, especially now with the political um, sociopolitical climate. I sometimes try to read the news from all perspectives and to get a firsthand accurate understanding of what native Russian speakers read in their news. It helps to have access to uh, Russian news. So um, that's where I I use Russian, but mostly it's English, a little bit of uh, Romanian and Russian. And then the other languages, and there are lots of them, are primarily used for designing stimuli and testing participants in the lab. And then we have speakers of those languages um, helping and working with on that in the lab. Oh, cool. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. I'd love to hear about what first drew you to doing research in the field of language and multilingualism and what are the kinds of uh, experiments and research that you work on right now? I don't know how far back you'd like to go because I remember being fascinated with language just always growing up. I would notice differences between languages, even like regularly regular verbs and um plurals and grammar differences that were, I found interesting. I know (laughs) even as a child, I remember thinking, hmm, the irregular for plural for coats is different than for other uh, nouns Uh in Russian. And uh, I have this very clear memories of being on the playground and talking with a kid and thinking, hmm, that's an interesting thing about language and just sort of thinking about language that way. And I remember one of my favorite programs as a child, radio programs, I would sit at the kitchen table and listen to this um, language program about language change and evolution and how some words have died out and other words have evolved. Um, And only now in retrospect, it seems like a peculiar uh, interest for a child to have, but it explains why and how I gravitated to this field. Um, I just naturally enjoy thinking about the interaction between language and mind and how languages change how we think and how um, they shape our perception of the world and reality. And I feel really fortunate that I was able to make this into my work and spend all a lot of my time thinking about this sort of things. Um, we have, you asked about our work in the lab and what we are working on, we have multiple experiments at any given time. We have uh, graduate students, postgraduate students, master's students, undergraduate students in the lab uh, working on projects for their you know, honors thesis, master's thesis, PhD dissertations on a, in a variety of um, sub areas. So we currently have a large five-year project for example, uh, supported by by the National Institutes of Health, where we're looking how language interaction in the bilingual mind changes uh, higher order cognition. And by higher order cognition, we mean things like memory, decision-making, creativity, semantic representation. So really how the, the two languages change how we think. And this is a continuum of a long, project that I've been working on really for 20, 
like 30 years, perhaps now, it depends on how you count, because my honors thesis research on bilingualism was in 93, 94. So it is 30 years. Um, looking at various aspects of language interaction in the bilingual mind. Um, we look at things like raising bilingual children. We look at things like verbal and nonverbal communication across languages and bilinguals. Uh, looking at how a bilingual maybe interacts differently, communicates differently in one language versus another, how they gesture differently, the decisions they make sometimes are different across their two languages. So people usually think about bilingualism research as comparing bilingualism to monolingualism. but And that's part of the broader question. We do work on that too, but we also focus on bilinguals themselves and look at how they differ across languages. And we also look at language experience of the continuum. So it's not this discrete thing, monolinguals versus bilingualism. We have all sorts of language experience from people who are mostly monolingual to people who've been exposed to another language a little bit, who've studied it more, who maybe are fluent in another language, Maybe they are trilingual, maybe they are multilingual, maybe they're exposed to lots of languages, um, and really looking at how that changes us as humans. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. When you were saying that, I remembered the part of your book that uh, one part that I found fascinating was when you talk about how um, because some languages are more similar to each other than others, speakers of those languages will have an easier time learning certain languages than others. And you were able to quantify, I can't remember the times that you were able to say like an English speaker, it might take this long for them to learn Spanish. It might take this long for them to learn Japanese. I thought that was really interesting to think about it in those terms. That's um, a really interesting area that you're bringing up. So the research that I describe in the book about how long it takes to learn another language comes from the Department of State, uh, which has you know decades of research of English diplomats or English speaking U.S. diplomats and political, just lots of people learning other languages. And they've quantified it. They have different category languages and some languages take four times as long to learn than others. But another interesting caveat to this uh, topic that you're bringing up is that even though it may take less time and may be easier to learn some languages, once you've learned them, it may actually take more cognitive resources to manage them. And what I mean by that is if you have learned two languages that are very similar, let's say you're a native English speaker. And then like yourself, you have learned Italian, Spanish, and French, right? That's what you were telling me earlier. And Italian, Spanish, and French are all Romance languages. They are more similar than if you had learned, let's say, Italian and Japanese or, you know, Spanish and Russian. And because they're more similar and share uh, more features at different levels, you know, in phonology and orthography, you you need to allocate more cognitive resources to make sure that one of them doesn't pop up when uh -huh. you are using the other. So if you are native, people often report that they would say, well, I'm a native English speaker. I learned, learned French and Italian at about the same time. And now I'm in France and I'm in Paris having a wonderful time as a tourist. And I'm trying to use my French, my, which I remember. And suddenly I see all these Italian words popping up. Yes. And this is, 
precisely because the two languages are more similar, they've been learned at more similar times, and it's more likely to happen than with a language that's very different. Mm, I've had that experience. I learned, so I started learning French in high school. I, you know, passed all the state tests I needed to, but I wouldn't say that I really knew it very well. But I started taking Italian my freshman year of college. And then my sophomore year of college, I tried to take intermediate Italian and intermediate French at the same time. And it was such a challenging semester because I was at the same level in both languages and I I couldn't do it. So I dropped French and I kept going with Italian. And then once my Italian was much better than my, my French, I was able to kind of pick up French again and try to work on getting that better. But when they were at the same level, it was just like I would open my mouth to speak one language and the other would come out. I couldn't keep them separate. <laughs> That's um. Uh, I think a relatively common experience for people learning multiple languages at the same time. The good news is that it actually, in a way, is a good thing because it gives your brain a workout and your brain is really exercising, working hard, juggling these languages, figuring out which one to facilitate and prioritize and which one to inhibit and control. So um, it's a good thing for your brain to juggle multiple languages in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speaking of those benefits of bilingualism and multilingualism, um, I think a lot of people, you know, know in a broad sense that learning languages is a good thing, both socially, uh, professionally, even for our brain development. What are some of the surprising benefits that people might not know about or might not have heard of before? There are so many, as you now know, having, uh, having read the the power of language, I will mention a few that I think may resonate them with a lot of people. So one su- surprising, perhaps one of the most surprising findings in the neuroscience of bilingualism and multilingualism in, in recent years has been the fact that knowing more than one language seems to um, offer some protection against cognitive decline in older age, that it's not always, but it's sometimes associated with aging. And it also seems to offer some protection against the cognitive decline seen with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. So um, people who develop Alzheimer's and dementia, if they are bilingual or multilingual, tend to show symptoms or to be diagnosed at four to six years later, than people who only speak one language. And four to six years is a pretty sizable difference. Uh, That means four to six years of higher quality of life, of being able to know and recognize your interim play with your grandchildren as opposed to not know them. And there is no, except for exercise, there is no other variable we know that can have such a huge effect on cognitive decline and dementia in older adults. There are a few variables that are known to have protective value. So exercise is one, the most uh, powerful uh, nutrition and education. These are three variables. And then Knowing two or more languages seems to be another variable and meta-analysis. So analysis of large studies show that the benefits from bilingualism are similar in size as the benefits from exercise, which I think is striking. 
And it's not extremely surprising because it does, knowing two or more languages is an enriching cognitive experience. Your brain has to um, process information more, it's like the richer linguistic um, repertoire. Um, the, the analogy I use in the book is I describe uh, having to take a certain road home or bridge. Let's say you're taking a bridge home every day for many years to work and back. And then one day that bridge collapses. If you know other ways to get home, if there are other bridges that have been built over time and you know those bridges, you can get home, no problem. But if that's the only bridge that exists and the only or the only bridge you know, uh, then you have a problem. You won't be able to reach your destination. In a similar way, if um, if if some brain areas are impacted, a bilingual or multilingual has this richer network that has been formed across languages, connection connected to memories and experiences over time. So um, there are alternative pathways for reaching that information. So this is one example. Uh, there are, again, there are so many to talk about that we could, I, I thought I'd just pick this one for now, but if there are others that you are particularly interested in, we can, we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone should read your book to hear, to read about all the examples, of course. Um, so you were talking about the benefits um, later in life or towards the end of life. What can you share about the language development and brain development of children who learn more than one language from birth? Sure. So, of course, the the benefits and the consequences of knowing multiple languages apply at all ages, basically from birth until death. And I'll use three different stages, I guess, to cover uh, the range. There's so many childhood examples, wonderful examples from childhood. So birth, the first I think I to mention there is that when babies are born, they can hear sounds of all languages. They can discriminate between sounds of all languages. And really, if you think about it, there is an unlimited number of possible combinations that our articular system can create. Some languages have a lot more vowels than others. Some languages have a lot more consonants than our than others. As babies grow and they hear input in only one language, their perceptual system and articulatory system becomes tuned to that language. And then after some time, they can no longer hear differences that don't exist in their language. Babies that grow up, grow up with two or more languages keep that window open longer. And... Um, they are able to differentiate between sounds of more languages. They are certainly able to differentiate between the sounds of the languages they hear as input, but also some related languages. Um, so that's one really interesting finding from very early in life, like first and second uh, years of life. Then as we get a little bit older and toddlers begin to learn words, so it's not just the sounds, but they begin to acquire words. What happens is um, little children if they are being raised with two or more languages, they very quickly figure out that the object that they're using or any item out there can have multiple labels. You can call, you know, you can call 
um, milk, milk, or leche, or moloko, or whatever you want to call it, and it's still the same thing. And it seems like a trivial um, thing to adults, but it's really not. It's a huge uh, step in what's called metalinguistic thinking. So metalinguistic thinking is being able to think about language. And it's this understanding that an item and the, its name are not one and the same. You can call something whatever you want to call it, because reality and the symbols, the words, the symbolic system we use to refer to reality are two different things. And it takes some time to, to get that concept, because if you only grow up with one language, you think, okay, well, a cow is a cow and a sheep is a sheep, and that's just the way it is. And they are connected. The label and the item, they are one and the same. But if you're a bilingual baby or child, you know that you can call um, a sheep and a cow and a dog and a cat all kinds of things. You can say uh, perro and you can say dog and you can say sabaka and it doesn't matter. It's still the same, um, uh, the same dog. So this is a really interesting thing that, that parents might not even be immediately aware of that is a metalinguistic skill that babies acquire or children acquire earlier if they speak two or more languages that lays the foundation for more advanced types of metacognitive awareness later in life. So this ability to understand that the symbolic system we use, the words we use and the reality they denote are not one and the same. So that's the second example. I'll use only one more because I know you have a time, like this podcast has to fit within a certain time limit. But another example is um, from now even slightly older children. Um, and it has to do with creativity. There is some research suggesting that knowing two or more languages can boost creativity and creative development in kids. So in one experiment, children were asked to draw items that don't exist, just using the, their imagination. So they would be asked to draw maybe a flower, or a house that doesn't exist. And children of the same age, if they only spoke one language, were more likely to maybe omit elements, like leave out the leaves of the flower, or uh, you know, have a house without uh, a roof or a door, or uh, leave out some petals on the flower. P children who spoke two or more languages were more likely to combine elements from different categories. So they may draw a flower with a tail or with feet or with teeth, or they might draw um, a flower with a door, or they might draw... Uh, so they would combine plants and elements and animals or incorporate elements in creative ways that monolingual children do as well, but at a later age. Um, so this is another example that suggests that uh, growing up with two or more languages has, encourages this flexibility in thinking and makes it possible for us to draw ideas that may seem disparate to people who don't speak those languages. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I love hearing about the connection between creativity and language. I think that a lot of times in schools, whether it's um, from, you know, state testing requirements or whatever angle it's coming from, math and language skills are pushed a lot, but we don't often look at the connection between um, creativity and both of those areas of skills. So that's fascinating. Um, 
I think you're making a really good point. The unfortunate uh, tendency of school systems to undervalue foreign language learning and learning additional languages. Uh, so music and foreign languages are such a boon to our brains and so beneficial for our neural and cognitive development. And they are often the first things to go because I think there is a lack of understanding about the long-term benefits that providing training and, and giving the brain this, this food, this rich input um, has on individuals and society. Yeah, yeah. One thing that we talk about a lot in Montessori education is how the different you know, subject matters are all seen as equally important. So botany and music and foreign languages, if it's a bilingual school, are seen as equally important to, you know, multiplication skills. But that's often not what, whether it's what the parents want or what they need to show their child's next school, the skills that they have, their next school is not going to really care if they know, you know, all the music notes (laughs) in a scale, but they care if they're able to add numbers together. So um, it really is uh, important to think of all of the interconnectedness of all of these skills. Math is very important. So this is in no way to say that we shouldn't teach right. math. <laughs> a very strong skill. But the two um, have so many similarities because math, just like human languages, Math is a symbolic system. It's just another, it's another type of language. It's another another form of communication. And the more languages you know, whether you know the language of musical notes, the language of mathematics, the language spoken in another country, the more your brain will benefit from it and society will benefit from it. And I talk a little bit about I talk a little bit in the book about the influx of um, brilliant minds from other countries and how the United States really benefits from this brain drain from other countries because of its support of creative ideas and free enterprise and systems of government. But the interesting thing is that a lot of the, the brain drain from other countries is precisely of people who are multilingual in all the symbolic systems. They speak multiple languages. They know multiple artificial languages, mathematical codes. Um, So it's an important way to keep society competitive. And I was talking about how during my uh, sabbatical time at Stanford, I would meet so many people in the Silicon Valley who spoke multiple languages and knew multiple artificial languages as well. There, there's a lot of similarity in how the two work. So multilingualism is without doubt a boon to human progress. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking about um, music, it also made me think that um, people will often tell me that I have a good accent when I'm speaking a foreign language or I can, um, you know, I remember in college, my friend was studying Mandarin. And of course, I didn't know anything that she was studying, but she would kind of say a sentence to me and I could repeat it back to her with the accent. And um, I think that that comes from having studied music at a young age. I grew up, my dad was a musician, so I grew up with music all around me. I grew up singing as a child. And I think that that musical ear really helps me with my own foreign language study. I think you're right. 
um, it's your exposure to music and also your exposure to other languages. So it's most likely a combination of things, the environment you were exposed to, uh, music, other languages, and probably also a combination of um, a genetical predisposition, this whole nature-nurture thing, which of course interact and work together in, in driving outcomes eventually. So you mentioned that your children grew up speaking English, but they also do speak a little bit of Romanian. Um, how old are they now? And what was that experience like? Did you, um, you know, try to speak two languages to them from birth? Or what was that experience like raising um, bilingual or multilingual children? My children are now grown. Uh, which is a whole new stage altogether. I know you're teaching multilingual Montessori uh, and the parents at that age, of course, it's so hard to raise kids. It's a lot of work, uh, but also such a sweet age and such a wonderful period of our lives. I think as hard as it was for me, the hardest part was and continues to be when my kids grew and left the home, grew up and left the home. So my oldest is now 21. Uh, and she is all done with her um, education, her master's degree. She's a computer scientist. Um, and for her, the languages have been very useful. She is really um, using both her natural and artificial languages professionally. My second uh, child is now 19 and she's in college. Uh, and she's interested in becoming uh, a speech language pathologist. So... I, I guess indirectly her background may have influenced her as well. And then my youngest daughter is 14. So we still are fortunate to have her at home for a few more years before she leaves the nest as well, which uh, will be hard to cope with. Uh, raising multilingual children in the United States is, uh, I think, difficult because it's not a socially supported, um, built-in environment. In most other countries, kids naturally grow up with multiple languages. So I was already telling you about my background. My husband uh, speaks Dutch as his native language, but he's also fluent in German. And he also knows some, some Spanish and French, which is very common in Western Europe. All of our parents, so our kids' grandparents speak multiple languages as well. Again, so because it's so common. So my mother-in-law speaks Dutch and German and Spanish and French and English. And I, I may be forgetting something, but she can have a fluent conversation in all those languages, even though she's in her 80s now. My uh, parents also speak at least three languages. The kids, however, as much as we tried, their primary languages for sure English because they grew up in the United States, monolingual society, monolingual schools. Um, they do speak the other languages with an accent and you can definitely recognize them as native English speakers because my husband's and uh, and my common language is English. Uh, we speak English at home. They hear some Dutch and some Romanian and they took foreign languages in school as well. With each child, it becomes more and more like the, the oldest child has the most knowledge of our native languages. And then the second child has less. And then by the time you have the third child, she communicates with her siblings primarily in English. But I think just mere exposure to this rich 
array of languages really helps. Uh, and you can really see them pick up other languages easily when we travel. Just like you were saying, they come easily to you. I think for parents who are feeling like, oh, my kids are just, it's so hard to raise them fully bilingual. That's okay. Simply exposing them to two or more languages will be beneficial to them later. Because if they later want to learn another language, it will be much easier to pick it up. Um, and at the end of the day, to parents who are trying, trying to decide uh, how to raise their children with other languages, my advice would be to follow the child's lead into what the child naturally gravitates to. And as parents, our primary responsibility is really to love them, grow them, raise them in a secure um environment so they feel loved and supported and the foreign languages or the additional languages are just bonus that come as a benefit by the way you live your life really um, it's wonderful to sign them up for other languages take them to other countries have a child care provider who speaks another language if your child enjoys that if it's a positive experience you don't you don't want that to be something that the child grows up presenting so it's a long answer, but because there are so many things to say to that topic. Yeah. Yeah. One of my one of my favorite parts of your book was when you talked about how people who are who know two languages have an easier time learning a third language. And I thought that was really wonderful because um, it speaks to how you don't we were saying this before we started recording there is no such thing as perfect in anything, but I think a lot of times parents I speak to feel like if they can't have their, you know, help their child be fully bilingual or quote, perfectly bilingual, then is it even worth it? And yes, it is. So I loved hearing that about how, you know, even if a child doesn't learn to speak a second or third language fluently at a young age, even just being exposed to another language will help that part of their brain, you know, get that exercise in learning a foreign language, and then they can go on to do that later if they so choose to. Absolutely. There is now really solid evidence that with each new language, it becomes even easier to learn additional languages. So if you're bilingual, it becomes easier to learn a third language. If you're trilingual, it becomes easier to learn the fourth language and so on and so forth. It's really like a virtuous cycle. The more you learn, the easier it becomes to learn more. And then you learn more and it becomes even easier to learn more. Um, and there is definitely no perfect multilingual or bilingual or perfect language user in general. It's a this continuum of experience. Um, as parents, when we raise children, there's uh, a lot of evidence now that one of the most important variables is richness of input. The richer the input the child receives, visual, auditory, tactile, just everything around it, the surrounding environment that's really rich the better it is for brain development. So raising our kids with multiple languages provides a richer auditory input and a richer environmental input that's beneficial long-term. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also really loved at the end of your book how you talk about bilingual education and how you also touched on this in our conversation that bilingualism isn't as culturally supported as it is in other countries in the United States. Um, so, you know, not everyone has access to bilingual education, but 
hopefully it's trending in that direction. Hopefully there's more public programs. I know I live in New York City and I know there are a lot of um, public program, public bilingual education programs in uh, neighborhoods in New York. So not just Spanish and not just Mandarin, but there's also Russian and Haitian Creole and Korean and so many languages. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, the tide is trending in that way. I hope so, too. I hope you're right about that. Bilingual education in the United States gets a bad rap. And I think that's because people confuse bilingual education with another language education. So they think if we are talking about bilingual education, we're thinking about not using English and raising or educating our kids in just that other language, which is definitely not the case. Bilingual education in its name has the definition of two languages. You are raising and educating kids in two languages simultaneously. And it benefits both the majority language student who now learns a minority language and the minority language student who now learns a majority language. Uh, there are so many benefits to some of the bilingual education programs. And I say some of them because there is a lot of variability in types of bilingual education, quality approaches. And, you know, we don't have time to go into all the different kinds of bilingual education here, but a high quality two-way immersion bilingual education has extraordinary benefits for lots of things like um, you know, reading, mathematics, interpersonal uh, relationships, uh, there is a lot of evidence now that two-way immersion, high-quality programs are beneficial to both majority language students and minority language students. And again, we're talking about educating kids in two languages, not in a language other than English. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times um, programs like uh, transitional models to take a group of minority language speakers and teach them in the majority language that sort of gets lumped into bilingual education discussions sometimes. And you're right, it's important to keep those separate when we talk about bilingual education, talking about that two-way immersion. That's really right, right. the gold standard. I, absolutely. But transitional programs of instruction have their place as well. And they are certainly better than the sink or swim approach which mm. some people use because they'd say, well, my grandpa didn't have access to a transitional education program and he turned out okay. And uh, yeah, well, he may have turned out okay, but think about how much better off he could have turned out if he did have access to that high quality education or other people who did not turn out okay and dropped out of school because they didn't have access to that education. So um Transitional programs of instruction, if you are in an environment where there are so many different languages spoken that you can't just choose one language for two-way immersion, they are also a good way to bring kids on board to uh, fluency in another language that helps them become fluent eventually. And the reluctance to invest into those programs and bilingual programs specifically uh, is really myopic long-term because... Think about the alternative. If you have a child who starts education, goes to school, and they cannot understand anything the teacher is saying. Um, let's say their parents are refugees from a war zone or from another country for whatever reason, and this is a middle schooler, and they're put in an environment where being a middle schooler is hard already for a lot of kids. But suddenly they 
don't understand the language. They can't understand the word the teacher is saying. They cannot understand their peers. They probably, they may dress differently and, and act differently because they come from a different cultural background. And now they have no access to the information they're being taught. It's not that they're not smart. They just can't understand the teacher. It leads to uh, increased likelihood of dropping out of school. And we know that there is a high correlation between dropping out of school and a whole host of negative social outcomes from um, underemployment to unemployment to um, changed family structures to criminality, lots of things. So don't we want to support education? Wouldn't we rather invest in bilingual teachers than in wardens and prison guard later on down the line? A bilingual education program is much more cost efficient. You invest in, in this for a couple of years until the kid becomes fluent in this other language. So yes, I'm a big fan of two-way immersion, but I also think that there is room for different modes of bilingual education that are all beneficial to society in different ways. Mm, yeah, thanks for thanks for walking us through that. I think that is a really important point to recognize. So one quote I loved from your book is that multilinguals often become somewhat different versions of themselves when they speak another language. And that's something that I often talk with um, guests about on this podcast, and I can also relate to that myself. So I'd love to hear about the different versions of yourself that you experience when you speak your different languages. That's a, a lovely topic to think about because I think everyone who is fully uh, bilingual, multilingual has those experiences that they um, feel a little bit differently when they use a different language. And there is a famous uh, saying, uh, to, know a lot, to know another language is to have another soul. For me personally, I would even go to the extreme of saying I would not be able to write this book in any other language but English. I wrote the book in English, which is my third language. I don't think I could have written this book in Romanian or Russian. And if I would have, it would have been a very different book. And there are multiple reasons for it. One is I don't have the professional vocabulary to talk about neuroscience and psycholinguistics and experiments in Romanian and, and, and Russian as I do in English. But there is also a personal element to it in what's expected of women in some societies versus others. What do I, what, what do I feel like I, I, can, I, I'm, I can do that is, uh, so I'm like, I'm justified. I'm, 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 there's more support for me as a scientist in an English speaking society than it is for me in the Romanian speaking society, which is still much more um, uh, rooted in traditional gender roles and, and a little bit more sexist. Although it, I mean, society in general still continues to be sexist. Um, and science is, science is not immune to that because science and education is part of society. And you probably know the experiment that if you ask kids to draw the picture of a scientist, most of them draw man. Mm. Um, and this is uh, at its core scientific book. It's a popular science book. And um, I think I gave my I give myself more of a license to be the kind of thinker and writer and scientist and and venture into those topics and areas. Uh, when I use English, 
than when I use Romanian, where women's roles are much more constricted and defined. So that's my own experience with that. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. I, um, when I was in college, I majored in Italian and for my, call it a thesis, but it was creative writing. So for my senior project in Italian, I wrote um, short stories in Italian and I wrote them in Italian, which I probably couldn't even do at this point. I feel like my conversational Italian is still great. Written Italian, not so much, but it was an interesting experience to write it first in Italian And then I did translate it into English just so other people could read it besides my professors. Um, And I think I was able to explore. I don't know if I explored a different side of myself, but I definitely was able to explore a different relationship with the Italian language, um, trying to do, you know, creative fiction writing versus the college papers I had written before. So um, I never really thought about that until you were talking about writing uh, your experience of writing a scientific book in English. And um, it was a really interesting experience for me trying to write something first in Italian without translating it that wasn't an academic paper. That is a beautiful example uh, that you firsthand had experience with. And I think it's um, in line with what bilingual writers experience and even talk about. There are many bilingual writers. There is, uh, we have Nabokov, we have Murakami, we have Jhumpalahiri, and they all have written about their bilingual writing experience and their pieces sometimes being different and feeling different across languages. Um, It's very interesting to read their thoughts on this, as it's interesting to hear your thoughts on this, as it's been interesting for me to experience that, just sort of what what I write and how I write about things across languages. Yeah, definitely. I just um, was revisiting Jhumpa Lahiri's book, In Other Words, and I was um, reading it in Italian. I think I might may have done that right, right when it came out, but I just bought it in Italy a month ago, and I was reading it again, and she talks about um, her experience. Maybe I'm confusing with this uh, with a different writing of hers, but she at some point she talks about the first thing that she wrote in Italian and she has an English translator. She doesn't do the translation herself. And I thought that was such an interesting choice. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because I saw on your Goodreads list before this interview, I looked and I saw <laughs> that you were reading that now and I found yeah. it fascinating, but I didn't know that you had read it in different languages. Had you read it in different languages then before? You said this is a reading. I, I cannot remember if I read it in English or Italian I know I've read it before. Uh, Right now I'm reading it in Italian. Yeah, so interesting. I can say that I've read and and things in different languages and found them very different. And I've seen plays in different languages. Like, for example, I've seen Waiting for Godot in at least three languages. Uh, And I'd say, you know, four languages if you consider U.S. English and U.K. English. And every time it's very different. And of course, some of it is the director, and the zeitgeist of the time, but some of it really is the language to a large, you know, to some extent. And it's just so lovely to see how things turn out as a result. You talked a little bit before about how parents can support bilingual or multilingual children, but is there anything else that you can uh, leave parents with its either advice or I guess reassurance about 
raising bilingual or multilingual children or things that they should keep in mind? It's hard to give advice about parenting, and I'm not sure how useful it is because everyone is there for advice. But I think I would probably approach it with reassurance as a parent of three children. I would want if if I could talk to myself when my kids were young, I would say, relax, you are doing okay. And if you love them and you support them, everything else will fall into place. And I say this sort of comparing how I raised my first child versus, you know, second and third. With my first child, I would sign her up for all these things and all these classes and all this you know, mommy and me things that you go to and you do. And then by the time I had my third child, I have her on the floor in the kitchen and I give her all the plastic containers and spoons to kind of play around with and and drum around and, and put on her head and play with and having her next to me and talking to her and interacting with her as she plays with that and ex- explaining to her and discussing the shapes and that all worked out just as well. So there are so many ways to interact and engage with your child as long as you're interacting with them. What the child at that age needs most is a, an attentive, loving adult, loving adult who um, interacts with them in a loving, supporting, supportive way. Take care of yourself as a parent if you are stressed out and overwhelmed. Love your kids and... Um, Follow their lead and what they have an inclination for and what they um, love doing. That's a very Montessori aligned uh, statement as well. We always talk about following the child and trying to follow their lead and in all different areas. I I um, agree with that approach because you want a harmonious relationship. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I love talking to you. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Thank you for for asking me all these great questions and thinking about all these great things and training our kids with a Montessorian approach to knowledge. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I have really enjoyed our conversation and I loved your book. So I'm excited for others to get to read it as well. I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you. It was just lovely talking to you. Thank you again to Dr. Marianne for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Dr. Marianne on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and you can find her book, The Power of Language, from your local independent bookstore or anywhere that books are sold. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.